everybody and welcome back to the extras. I'm Sam. I'm Peter. It's good to be back with you this week. Uh, Lachlan is uh, having a little bit of a break on holidays this week, so it's you and me, mate. Windsurfing we... in Fiji, I think. Yeah, that's that's with baby, baby in arms, I think. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, have a great time, I'm sure. Um, we, we are here. We're, we're in a new series, Pete. Um, we're sort of spending chunks of this term and the next in fact the next few months looking at the book of Matthew and uh, we got underway in that over the last Sunday and uh, many of our growth groups will have kicked off in that uh, through the course of the week and we're kind of uh, we're a little bit staggered aren't we in the way that we're preaching so some of our congregations are doing something one week and the others are the week behind Um, so that's something we're trialing this term as well. Yeah, that's right. So we have been uh, a little bit staggered. You might have done different passages in your growth group this week, depending on what congregation you're at. But uh, we're coming up to a passage uh, this week in uh, Matthew chapter 19 at some of our congregations. But we are looking at the passage we did last week in a number of our congregations uh, today, which is Matthew chapter 13, and a little bit of an overview of Matthew's gospel, which you shared with us, Sam. Can you give us a bit of a recap, yeah. uh, particularly for those who won't have uh, heard that sermon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you talk about? Yeah, so I preached this at three congregations um, on, on the weekend. I haven't preached this sermon at Night Church or North Rocks. Uh, that's part of the stagger, but um, and it, it'll impact us a little bit on the extra. So we're just sort of, we're trying and seeing how we go with this. But let me, let me tell you a little bit about Matthew 13. Um, we did a bit of a, just to kind of get back into Matthew's gospel and, and kind of catch up on this, this, um, big theme of the kingdom of God uh, that, that's coming through our series this term. And um, Matthew 13 is the parable of the sower, uh, you know, the one where the farmer uh, scatters different uh, seed on different soils. Uh, there's different reactions to the word of God, the word of the kingdom as it goes out. Uh, some, it just gets snatched away. Others, uh, short burst of growth, but no root because of rocky soil. Others, uh, choked out by the thorns. And then still others, good soil that produces a crop up to 100 times what was sown. And um, we were talking about how that really sets us up to think about the word of the kingdom that we're going to hear uh, through our series in Matthew over the course of uh, this term. And um, particularly about responding bearing fruit um, and uh, kind of seeing the king clearly, um, so so hearing his word, understanding it, and then having a response of of bearing fruit in line of it. So that was sort of the big thrust of um, Matthew 13. Um, We've got a bunch of questions that have kind of come out from that. Yeah, tremendous. Okay, so well, what have we got then on the text line? Yeah, all right. Uh, Well, so should we just go back and forth through these? Um, So somebody said, uh, Sam... How do we say that God calls all people to himself and have parables keep us from seeing God and all his goodness? Um, so are parables for us today when they keep people's, keep people in the dark, i.e. we are not disciples? Um, so a few ideas going on in that, but I, I think the thrust of that question seems to be um, if parables, as Jesus says they do, actually stop some people from seeing, um, how, does that, how does that work today? Maybe you can get us going on that, Pete. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Jesus talks, doesn't he, about how uh, the knowledge of the you know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, mm. disciples in crowd, but not to them, uh, mm. the people, the out crowd. Mm. Why do you speak to them in parables? Because knowledge is restricted. Mm, that's right. And uh, Jesus sort of quotes Isaiah to explain. He says, "Well, God's fulfilling what He said He would." do or fulfilling this kind of theme that's been in scripture always hearing never understanding and so 
the parables uh, are a part of that movement of the uh, the word of God being out there, being heard at least with the ear, but not being understood. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so yeah, there's a sense in which. Um, um, how do, how do they then function for us today, I guess, is the question behind the question. So at that time, um, there, there was, um, Jesus didn't yet want the crowds to understand. But I think now the time, on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, um, the secret of the kingdom is out, if you like. Um, and it's actually, it is now time for, uh, for us to understand. Part of the reason Matthew's put this here for us is so that we can, we get the explanation of the parable, we get um, what it's all about. And, and I think part of what... Um, uh, yeah, on this side of, of the cross, we, we are to see the, uh, we can see the secrets of the kingdom. We can see who the king is. And so it's now the time for understanding. I think we want to um, make it as clear as possible. We don't want to, we don't want to veil the word um, anymore. I think, is that fair to say? Mm, yeah. And uh, in part, you know, we have the knowledge of the kingdom as imparted from Jesus to his disciples. Now shared with us, those disciples Jesus has made, Apostles, mm. written the apostolic word for us, share their understanding that Jesus let them into of the kingdom of heaven. So it's not like we're on the outside yeah. now, but we can hear those on the inside, those with whom Jesus shared himself and shared mm. the secrets of the kingdom, telling us what Jesus said the kingdom of yeah. heaven was like. So as we read Matthew's word, we yeah. get led into Matthew's God-given apostolic understanding of the kingdom. That's it. That's exactly right. Um, I, I guess there's still a sense, though, that some will still read Matthew's account and um, and not understand it, not make sense of it, and and the parable still functions in that sense. In that sometimes the um, the word will be snatched away, and others sometimes there will be thorns growing up, and sometimes there will be rocky ground that doesn't take root. Um, and so I think the parable, the, the concept of responding, different responses to the kingdom, still stands, but the secret idea of parables, the idea of them veiling people's eyes, um, I think that's kind of now um, finished because because God now wants to open up the, the secrets of the kingdom to all. So. Mm. All right. Well, great. We've got another question here. Hey, Sam. Sounds like it's another one for you. <laughs> uh, what would be some more specific things that would help us identify whether thorns are choking out the word? And what are some practical ways we can go about weeding out those thorns? Ah, that's a great question, and I really appreciate someone trying to sort of hear the word and respond rightly to it. Um, they want to be, they, they want to um, respond to the king. They want to bear fruit, and one of the key things to do, therefore, is just to keep check on the thorns. Um, it's very hard to say um, in an anonymous question, because um, I think at one level the the possibilities are, are sadly endless in terms of how many different ways you could go in terms of um, applying this to, to any particular life which I think maybe just as a just as a first comment shows the importance of um, some aspect of your Christian life where you are known by other Christians and your life is open to others like mm. I think there's a value in you know this is what we do in growth groups right uh, where we open our lives to one another and allow each other to speak in so that any one particular um person's life can be sort of brought under the, the lens of the word of God and we can sort of look where are the thorns and how can we help each other and how can we weed these out and repent and believe and I think that's that's just a, a broad comment um, and I guess on that line um, maybe one of the things to, to ask yourself is um, where do you have a propensity for thorns um, and maybe the question I ask is if, if you were looking to kind of trip yourself over in your Christian life where would you start <laughs> if you were looking to kind of um, knock 
like so for example for me i know that one of the areas you'd want to knock me over would be on pride um and uh and on self-importance and and selfishness um those would be the if you if, if someone was looking to trip over my christian life that'd be the way to do it and I, I it means i've got to be particularly careful of those of those areas and pursue humility and pursue selflessness um rather than sort of fostering pride and, and selfishness um so that might be a question you can ask yourself, which is, you know, where, where's my propensity to have thorn? Um, the third thing I think to, to just, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, Pete. Um, the third thing to say maybe is um, just expect that thorns will grow up a little bit like gardening. Like I did some gardening yesterday. I um, chopped down a part of a bush that was a bit overgrown. Um, and then behind it was all this weed that I hadn't noticed before. And um, I needed to get it out and actually then I sort of looked a little bit further along and it had sent some runners and was coming up somewhere else and so I had to kind of get this section out. Now I could have left it for a few more weeks um, but at the same time if I leave it for a couple more weeks well it'll be even more, um, it'll take hold even more and so I was like well I'm here I might as well tear it out um, and I shouldn't be surprised that weeds pop up, um, that thorns and briars are, are there and so part of just regular maintenance I guess in the garden to, to push the analogy um, means just getting out there and expecting that there are going to be some weeds and sometimes you need the roundup, sometimes you need a shovel, um, you, you've got to get them out. Um, and yeah, so to keep that regular pattern of just um, checking out how things are going and where are the weeds and, and taking them out. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know where I heard this first, but I think it's helpful saying you don't drift into godliness. Mm. And so just like your garden, you don't go out there and, and like, oh, a bunch of camellias popped up all over the place. Hooray. That's not and they're looking beautiful and trim. You yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. Weeds is what pops up, right? Yeah. And in our life, you know, sin is what pops up. Um, the Spirit gives us the power to fight it, and God is transforming us. But you know, we're still we're still in the flesh as well at the same time. And uh, those uh, those kind of uh, sinful habits or propensities will pop up. Mm. I will say the thing that Jesus draws attention to is is the worries of this life. Mm. Jesus talks a fair bit about. It. You know, anxiety and getting worried about this or that, particularly connected to the material circumstances of our life, I think. You know, a bit worried about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Mm. Um, and the deceitfulness of wealth, mm. which I think is such a, a powerful phrase. Yeah. Not only that wealth is um, it has, has a, a spiritual power, can have a spiritual power over us, but it's sneaky about it too. Mm. You know, it can exert uh, influence on us mm. deceitfully in ways that we might not. Choke out trusting God in a way that other things perhaps don't, don't have the same quite quite the same power to. Yeah, which may well be why Jesus spends so much time talking about it. And mm. in fact, uh, you'll know, like a number of our congregations talked about um, back in Matthew nineteen mm-hmm. uh, last week, and others will uh, meet that passage this mm. week. And uh, Jesus speaks a powerful word there about yeah. uh, what wealth can do to your mm. spiritual life. And we've got a bunch of questions about wealth and money from your sermon that half of the congregations heard last week, and we'll, we'll cover them on the extras next week. So, yeah. um, okay, um, one for you, Peter. Um, back to parables. Um, somebody's interested to know um, how sophisticated was the device of parables in biblical times? Um, was it something that other teachers and philosophers commonly did, um, or uh, earlier even, um, or was it just something specific to Jesus? We all know Jesus as the parable dude. Um, did other people do this? Yeah, I think the short answer is that, uh, yes, they did. Jesus was uh, pretty special in the way he used them. Mm. So um, there's like a Greco-Roman tradition of parables. So, mm. you know, Aesop's fables, I'm mm. sure you'll be uh, you know aware of, like a 
what, what's one of those? The lion with the, with the thorn in his paw, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so little narrative stories um, that have, you know, kind of a symbolic meaning or mm-hmm. a lesson to mm-hmm. be drawn from them. Yep. And um, you get uh, people like Aristotle talking about them in his kind of rhetorical treatises. He talks about these different forms of um, figurative language and, and, and parable is a kind of a category of his. Mm. Um Probably Jesus is not reading um, Quintilian or like reading up on his Latin uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Greek, um, you know, rhetoric books. Um, he's probably drawing on a biblical tradition of something called the Marshal, Mushalim, which are uh, little kind of stories or sayings that uh, have a kind of a teaching word to say. And so uh, we might think here perhaps of, say, you know, David has committed um, sin with Bathsheba, uh, Uriah's wife, and, uh, and the prophet Nathan comes up to him and says, hey, David, um, I want to tell you about a man, right? This man, he had a he had a little sheep. He carefully looked after that sheep, um, you know. He fed it, and then and then, and then uh, somebody somebody stole it, mm. and um, and and David says, "Oh God, the man who did this has got to die." Mm. And then uh, Nathan, that incredible line, "You are the man." Mm. Uh, so you know, th- there's a, there's this kind of tradition of um, stories used to to teach and to uh, correct. Um, which is which is there? There are other ones also in the uh, in the Bible, um, but uh, I think it's fair to say that Jesus takes it to another level in terms of the amount of parables he seems to use. He's just talking in parables a lot in the way that nobody else kind of really is. Mm. Uh, and sophisticated is an interesting word. I don't think you'd say the parables are um, sophisticated in the sense of being kind of really uh, complicated, uh, but as pieces of communication, they are unbelievably um, subtle, slippery, and powerful. Um, mm. You sit down and read a, power, a parable, it doesn't matter how many times you've read it, it doesn't matter how much you think you know what it means, mm. um, it will flip you on your back and leave you kind of, you know, waving your legs in the air. Uh, they're incredible yeah. um, ways that Jesus uses to, uh, to to expose what's going on in us mm. uh, and to, to, to show us that what the kingdom of heaven, mm. something that we by definition, cannot see, uh, looks like. What's it like? Let me tell you a parable. And it's interesting, that, that idea, that notion of the power of Jesus teaching through parables is exactly what um, those who experienced his preaching, you know, that they would often be amazed at his teaching. Um, they, you know, sort of flipped you over on your back kind of sense. Um, and also at that point, we're just so unable to challenge him. In fact, in the section that we're going to get to at the end, Jesus is going to go toe-to-toe with a bunch of um, the religious leaders of his day. And they get to this point where they realise they cannot... Um, one up this guy he's just too good a teacher of um, so there is a there's this maybe it's not a sophistication it's, a, it's just a power to his teaching which he teaches with as one who has authority um, and, and is so sort of incisive with his um, with his parables that um, yeah the crowds and, and the teachers of the law they, they recognize him so mm. yeah um, still going on parables mm. why did Jesus bother preaching to the crowd if he didn't want them to understand uh, like when he's um, saying this sermon about four swords. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I think you hinted at this before. Um, when he does this in verse thirteen, he actually tells us why. Verse, uh, so if you've got your Bible there, Matthew thirteen, verse thirteen, um, well, verse ten. Let's kick it up there. The, the disciples came and said, "Why do you speak to the people in parables?" They're asking this question that we've we've just got. Uh, and verse thirteen is the answer. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Um, saying um, that even though seeing they don't see and though hearing they don't hear or understand, 
Um, otherwise, down in verse 15, they might turn and repent. And he's picking up on the context of Isaiah's ministry, that Isaiah was sent um, at one level with a word of judgment. Um, and he was to go and speak to the people, but God actually, for, for many of them, didn't actually intend to, to use that as a word of salvation, but as a word of condemnation. So he'd go and speak God's word. Um, they would hear it, but they wouldn't respond to it. And God knew that and put it in such a way such that he was speaking clearly, but the people wouldn't come back because God's intention was to judge his people Israel for their sin. And I think that that theme is being picked up here in the earthly ministry of Jesus, that Jesus here is again speaking to the people Israel. Um, but his word, even though um, for those with eyes to see, it has a beautiful word of salvation and mercy in it. Um, for those um, who don't don't have that God-given eyes to see, don't have the secret of the kingdom yet, um, it functions as a word of judgment to, to condemn them for their rejection of the Messiah. And so there's a sort of patterning thing going on here where Jesus is coming in the pattern of Isaiah. Um, and then God's going to use that so that as the people and, and actually as the nation of Israel expressed through their leadership, and we're going to see this in the chapters ahead, as they actually reject God's Messiah, they reject their own king and they crucify him, God is then going to use that to be merciful. Um, he's going to use their own rejection of, of the Messiah to, to save them and to um, bring forgiveness for the world. Um, and so God is kind of, and Jesus, they're working together on a, on a foreordained plan that involves Jesus going to the cross. And for that to happen, Israel need to be condemned and um, or brought under judgment. Um, and Jesus needs to die. And so this is all part of the pattern that Jesus speaks, but only those with eyes to see and ears to hear, which at this stage is just the little group of the 12 that Jesus gives those eyes to see and ears to hear to. Um, so there you go. There's, hopefully that helps. To, do you, I don't know. Do you want to add anything onto that? No, that sounds good to me. Maybe I'll just move us on to the next question. Yeah. Uh, the next one we've got here is uh, someone asked very honestly. I think is it weird to not feel that happy about being in the good soil when all your non-Christian friends aren't there with me? Does that disappointment itself count as a thorn? Mm. I love the honesty in this question, and I appreciate that. Um, and I think I want to resonate with you in that in that sort of there's a godly discontent when we look around and we see as Jesus did that 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 the harvest is plentiful, um, but the workers are few, and, and we want to see those people who are outside the kingdom brought in as part of the harvest. There's there's a rightness to feeling a bit of urgency and pain about that, um, and I think that the the response to that, and we're going to hit this. Some of us are going to hit this in Matthew 20 in the parable of the vineyard that there is to go and work in the vineyard to, to see the harvest brought in, to see that um, the word of the gospel go out and see see people brought in. Um, so, and, and Jesus says in Matthew 9, pray that God would send workers out to the harvest so that that can happen. Um, however, I, I think I'd also just want to gently sort of um, nudge on this question, the, the idea of, and maybe just question back a little bit, um, what, what do you love the most? Um, there is a danger here that we love our friends or our family and those who, who we are connected to more than we love the kingdom and the king. And so therefore, when we look around at the prospect of, of the king, being in relationship with the king or the kingdom without my precious friend or family, and I think, well, I don't want that kingdom because I, I, I love my friend more and I, I couldn't possibly want to be in a kingdom without that person, um, which I think actually says here, I, I've got an allegiance 
to that person over and above my allegiance to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And, and so I just gently want to sort of push us there. We, it's right for us to want to see them in, but but the idea to feel disappointed with the kingdom because my favourite person's not in it, uh, well, it means I've probably got the wrong favourite person because uh, Jesus needs to be the favourite person. He is in the kingdom. Um, yeah. No, no. Yeah, and I think even the, the sense of, you know, uh, 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 loving them more. I mean, are you, are you really uh, loving your friend if you... Uh, would rather jump out of the kingdom mm. to be with them than to have them in the kingdom with mm. you. Uh, you know what we know that what your friend needs is to know the love of God for them mm. and uh, to experience His forgiveness. Uh, so, um, of course, we we love our friends. We dearly love our friends and our family who uh, don't know the Lord uh, and the way that we you know really truly most deeply love them is mm. to pray for and call them to come into the kingdom with us yeah yeah i think that's right so um so yeah there you go so sometimes on this side of glory there may be a, a mixed feeling about it you, you have a discontent that they're not in the kingdom but i don't think that means that we want to jump out uh, in order to be with them rather than with jesus we yes want to, we want to call them in and pray and preach the gospel to them such that they might join us in the kingdom absolutely all right, um, let's go to the, I think we've got one more. Mm. Um, and I think this one's just come in as a, as a, as a sort of out-of-the-blue question, and great to hear it, and we want to answer it. So uh, let me throw it to you, Peter. Um, if people's souls go to heaven or hell after death, uh, what is the result of animals' destiny after they die? Do they also have a soul? Great question. Thanks very much for asking. Uh, much on my mind right now. We just got a, got a dog you in got our a dog. family. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so I'm keen to know what's going to become of her. Um, <laughs> look, why don't I answer the half of this that I feel as if I can answer? Sure. Um, if people's soul will go to heaven or hell after death, uh, there's a little <coughs> bit of a, an assumption there that I want to uh, challenge a little bit. So uh, what we tend to think of, or, or pop culture tends to think of, is that we've you know, we are a soul and um, maybe the soul is in a, in a shell or, you know, a kind of a, a meat suit that it's piloting around for a while. Yeah. And then when we die, we leave that shell yeah. behind, we drop the meat suit and the, uh, the, the soul flies off to heaven or to hell to have a, a wonderful time. No more bodies, no more of that stuff. Mm. Now, this is not from the Bible. Mm. This is not how the Bible thinks about human existence or about life after death. Um, this, uh, you know, the, the, the ancient Greeks had this idea, um, immaterial, good, material, bad. And so we want our soul to fly away, to live in a wonderful immaterial world where there's no taint of the physical or anything like that. But the Bible says God made the physical world and he made it good. It's not his enemy. It's not opposed to him. It's not sort of this toxic sludge that you just can't do anything with. Mm -hmm. Jesus took on a body. Jesus rose as a body and Jesus lives as a body now. Mm. So we're not looking forward to heaven in the sense of a non-physical world. We're looking mm. forward to what the Bible calls a new heavens and a new earth. Resurrection. Resurrection. Jesus has been resurrected, raised, and his body needs something to stand on. Mm. So like, that's it. Yeah. That's right. So God will remake the physical world uh, and that is the destiny of people. Now when the Bible talks about kind of souls, it seems to be um, using that language just to talk about the kind of continuity between our physical existence now and our physical existence then. Obviously, there's some kind of gap for, between that because our bodies 
go into the ground and decay, mm. but the biblical hope is a new body. So mm. how do you bridge that gap? Mm. The idea of the soul seems to be a way to kind of talk about the continuity of a person mm. between these two discontinuous yep. physical existences. So then what about my puppy? What about your puppy? Yeah, so so we, we, thanks for, we've got a nice clarity here that our hope is not um, kind of disembodied soul state, but actually a fully embodied resurrection hope in, in the new creation. I think that's really helpful. Um, I've got a puppy uh, or, or a horse or a, something, um, it dies, um, do horses go to heaven? Yeah. So I think the question is not going to be, uh, do horses have a soul? Mm. Uh, because I think that's not really the right question. That's not the decisive factor for people. Mm. Um, now, spoiler, the answer here is I don't really know. Okay. Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. Uh, the, the redemption story in the Bible has a, has a clear centre. It's clearly centred on human beings. Mm. And so uh, the way that uh, the creation story works, we build to this kind of pinnacle of God's creative activity uh, it's the, the man and the woman uh, living together. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the man and the woman, they, they fall in creation uh, with them. Uh, and so there's a kind of a, there's a, a border or a fringe to the redemptive story, which is the non-human world, which God made and made good and all of that uh, God is interested in. It. But its fate is bound up with the fate of human beings. And that's really what the Bible spends most of its time talking about. Jesus becomes a human being and he comes to save human beings. And so the Bible speaks directly to human beings a lot, but not a lot to mm. the what happens to the non-human creation. So we read in Romans 8 that creation is, is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Its destiny is bound up with ours. And so uh, the restoration of all things is a part of the gospel story, but it's at the fringe and at the border of the gospel story. Mm. And we don't get perhaps as much information as uh, enough information to satisfy all of our curiosity mm. about it. Uh, will there be animals in the new creation? I don't think the Bible speaks a direct word on that, but it's, I think to me it's hard to see how there wouldn't be. Mm. God put so much uh, wonderful effort into it's creating. creative energy into those things. Yeah, gum trees yeah. and lyrebirds. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. want to use it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're brilliant. Yeah. And maybe even glorified, you know, like fully redeemed, like as the whole creation it comes into the freedom of the children of Tremendous. God. Tremendous. Yeah, There's kookaburras, the, but they like, start at 7 o'clock instead of 6 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> Proper fixed ones. They're not the, not the fallen ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can tell we're getting a little silly here yeah. um, because we're kind of, uh, you know, we can look forward to a good new creation with, you know, think with animals in it. Are they, um, do they have a continuity of personhood with the animals we know, you know? Mm. Hard to say. What is the nature of animal personhood? I don't really feel mm. able to speak a strong word on that. So I think, is the new creation good? Yes. Mm. Will it have creatures in it? Probably. Will your particular creature be in it? Dunno. <laughs> Thank you, mate. That's helpful. And I think it's worth noting, you know, the, the Bible tells us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, it doesn't tell us everything about everything. Um, and there's going to be a, a kind of delightful revelation in the moment that we see the Lord face to face and we look around for the first time in that new creation. We go, well, it's even better than I'd hoped. I think that's, yeah, that's yeah. the key, isn't it? That, yeah. that God's, you know, what God has prepared for those who love him, mm. uh, it's what no eye has uh, seen, you know, or ear has heard, better than we could imagine. Mm. Thank you, mate. Really helpful. Um, that's it uh, for, for our questions today. Um, we're back on this Sunday. Again, we've got a slightly staggered, so some of us are going to be hitting 
Uh, end of Matthew 19, thinking about uh, the parable of, uh, well, not the parable, the Jesus' interaction with the rich young man, um, and others are going to get the parable of the vineyard. So, depending on where you're up to, it'll be chapter 19 or chapter 20. Um, that'll be the sort of, you know, we'll be living between two worlds through a bit of this term. But yeah, that's right. But next week's extras will be about the encounter between the rich young man. So, if you have questions about that, send them in, and we'll do our best to answer them then. Awesome. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, everybody. See ya.